The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 17-21. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, we are making our way through the book of 1 Peter. Um, We've been in it for about five or six weeks. I'm not exactly sure at this point, but we've got a lot of way to go yet. Um, And after only six weeks, we've only knocked out, at the end of the day, the first first 21 verses. Um, And so we're, we're taking our time here. And the reason we're doing that is because there's so much stuff to just chow down on. There's so much to feast on. And so I hope that throughout the week that, that you're, you know, as you listen to these sermons, as you're processing through some of the stuff, as you're going to your Bible for yourself, as you're using uh, these First Peter uh, little guides that we, we made for you, that, that you would be feasting on this as well throughout the week. Um, now last week was a big week for us where uh, at the end of verse um, verse 1 through 12, we turn from the indicatives into the imperatives, right? That, that word therefore tips us off to this transition. Now, the indicatives are facts. They're already realities, and the imperatives are the implications of those realities or the reflex that we have for these realities. So, so an indicative is that I own a dog. The imperative is I, therefore, I take care of said dog, right? The indicatives, the imperatives, the realities to the reflex. Now, the indicatives always in Christianity, the indicatives will always precede imperatives because being who you are, what you are, what's already been done, shapes what you do. Now, to flip them around creates Moralism, it's not Christianity at all, right? To say, do this and then you'll be that is the opposite of what what the gospel communicates to us. And so to give a quick recap of the indicatives, what's already been done, uh, I wanna state the reality once again because it's so important to go back to this every time. And actually, Peter is, is a great pastor because as we go through this, you'll see how he sort of weaves in and out between the indicatives and the imperatives. So I wanna just briefly go through verses one through 12, really quick. Now, you'll notice there are no commands here. There's nothing for you to do. It's all what God has already done or what God will do by himself, right? These are just facts. And so Peter says, here's the facts, that you have been chosen by God. You are born again with a living hope and you have an inheritance that God is keeping for you in heaven and he is going to bring you personally to that inheritance in heaven, but before you reach that end goal, right, that inheritance, you will face trials. You are going to face hardships. But these are not obstacles that are just in the way. These, these are meaningful. 
There's a reason behind these. These obstacles, these trials are to purify our faith, faith and it results in praise and glory and honor when our faith becomes sight. Now see, Peter's saying that God has accomplished everything for you and will complete everything for you in order to bring you to a fully realized salvation. Right, and we've talked about that before, a fully realized salvation, where everything is set right. right. Where you have a perfect relationship with God, with one another, where creation, right, no more hurricanes, no more fires. Everything is set right once and for all. And then verse 13 turns this corner, right? So we, we, that's kind of the indicatives. Now verse 13 turns the corner and says, here's the imperatives. Therefore, he says, in light of this, in response to this, here is how you should live. Now Alec did a good job with this last week while I was gone. And he said, every part of you, your head, your heart, and your hands changes in light of the indicatives, Right, he says, your head, that you are to prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Your heart changes. That you are to hope fully, that your affections are to be fully on Jesus. That you are to resist the former passions that which once drove you to do the things that you did. And your hands are changed now because now all of your conduct is meant to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. See, all of this is summarized in this one statement. Peter's saying, be what you already are. Be holy because God has already made you holy. Live like you've already been made holy. Now as you look through these verses so far, one of the ways that you can look at this is through the lens of family, right? There's a lot of subtle family language here and I think we've been picking up on this week to week where, where First Peter actually starts out with, with God as reference as the Father. You see that in verse one, um, or verse two actually, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, okay, and then later on he says, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in verse 17, there's a clear transition of God being the Father to now God is our Father. Last week we were, we were sort of framed up as obedient children, right, referencing this relationship that we have with God. Now this week he's gonna say, if you call him Father, so there's this transition that we see where God is not just the Father, but our Father. There's a personal connection, an intimate relationship that this Father has made you born again. He's made you like him. That holiness is now in your DNA because, right, when you're, you have your daddy's DNA in you, just like that happens, right? Your, your dad passed on his DNA through you. Now the DNA of God is in you to be holy. And then there's a her inheritance waiting for you. And so he's saying, now live like this is the reality, which it is. Now when we think about it, most of us anyway, when we think about God as our father, this is the primary way that most Christians view God. He's our heavenly father. Scripture points to this, tells us about this. Jesus himself told us, when you pray, pray, our father who art in heaven. And, and for this context, of the people that Peter is talking to this morning, this concept of, of God being our Father is a radical concept. 
See, to have such an intimate relationship with a God, it would have been unheard of for the people that Peter is writing to, right, in these pagan cultures, because all the other gods are sort of out there. They don't really want an intimate relationship. They just want something from you. Now, some of us can relate to this a little bit, right? When we think of God as our father, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Maybe, maybe it's because our family of origin, we didn't have a great dad, and so it's like that, that word father is sort of tainted. Or maybe we just think that, you know, God really is just a distant being out there. There's no way I can have that sort of personal relationship. But for a lot of us, this isn't a, a, a shocking thought that God is our father, See, for those of us who grew up in a a quasi-Christian home, it's a familiar notion, right? That's how we see God. He's our heavenly father. But what we're gonna see today is that there's more to it, right? That he's not just our heavenly father. There's more to God than that. Verse 17, he's gonna show us God in a light that's gonna alter our view of him. Now, A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, if that's true, then we need to have a well-rounded view of God. Our our view of God needs to be well-informed, and that's exactly what Peter sets out to do. Because the way that we see God, it informs how we live. If you see God wrongly, then you will inevitably live wrongly. And Peter has already laid out, previous verse, verse 16, that the way that you live matters to God, that you are to be holy in all your conduct. And so to make sure that your conduct is holy, Peter is going to refocus us on who God is, what he's like, here in verses 17 through 21. And with an accurate view of God, we'll be naturally inclined to live as God intended. See, we'll find deep delight in a relationship with God that we will desire to be like him in every regard and that we will have an overwhelming burden for God's mission. So if you want to open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. We'll jump right in. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deed, conduct yourself with fear throughout time in exile. Now, here, Peter affirms, yes, God is your father. But he's saying as well, God is also your judge who will judge impartially according to your deeds. Now, he's saying, just because God is your father, just because you have an intimate relationship with God does not mean that he's going to compromise his integrity as a judge. See, God will not bend his standards or or compromise his holiness regardless of how much he loves you. Now, if you're a parent, you realize how prone you are to doing this. I do this all the time with my oldest. I do it intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. There'll be times where he's doing something that he should not be doing and he should be disciplined for. Right, being as mean to his brother or a dog or just being straight up disobedient. And if I were to judge impartially, there's no doubt he would be over my knee and getting three to the rear end, right? No doubt. And yes, I do spank my children. Not my youngest one, because he's not ready yet, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) But as his father, there's this, this 
urging me to not do that, right? Because I want to be... I, want to be the, I don't want to be the bad guy. I want to be the daddy. I want to be the guy that, that just shows him a constant outpouring of love. I don't want to hurt him. See, my desire for him is to see me as daddy, and that compromises my ability to effectively judge impartially. Now, if it were somebody else's kid, then sure, I'd be quick to jump. Like, that kid needs a whooping, right? We went out on Friday night, and we were out to eat, and there was a young couple that was sitting behind us, and we could just tell that they were judging us. Like, you gotta whoop your kids. But they didn't know what they're talking about, because that's, anyway. <laughs> On the other hand, so there's that pull as, as a, a parent. On the other hand, a judge's reputation is based on his ability to unbiasedly uphold the law of the land. See, a good judge upholds the law. A bad judge makes compromises and lets things slide, right? That's, that's what corruption and failure looks like. See, if a judge isn't impartially judging, he's not fit for the job. Now, just think for a moment how it would go over if a, job, a judge were given the responsibility to reside over uh, a case that the defendant was his own kid. Now, this kid's clearly guilty of a fairly serious crime. Now just imagine that internal tension, right? Do, do I live as a, a loving parent or, or an impartial judge? How do I do this? Right, it's a real dilemma. And they essentially have one of two options in how they proceed. Do they lose their kid to the, to the law, right? The kid get locked up? Or do they lose their job for compromising? Now, in our society, this, this won't happen because clearly this is a conflict of interests, that the judge would be excused, there's a new trial, because it would be impossible for a human being to be both impartial judge and a loving father in a situation like that. But this is where God is unlike us, that he is completely able to be both a loving father and an upright, impartial judge, and to do them both perfectly. See, these are the two things that Peter wants us to see, to kind of round out our view of God, that he is both a loving father and an impartial judge. That as a father, he's intimate, he's caring, he's gracious, he's loving, he's instructive, he's for the flourishing of his children. And as a judge... He's holy, he's righteous, he's upright. He won't tolerate that which is not those things. And there's no conflict of interest within himself because he is both a holy father and an impartial judge. So while verses 15 through 16 from last week charges us to be holy as God is holy or, or to be what you already are, to live in your new identity, verse 17 gives us a new command in light of this view of God as father and impartial judge. It gives us a warning. It says that you will have to answer one day for how you lived. That you will be judged impartially and holiness is the standard. It comes back to it. You must be holy because that is the standard in which you'll be evaluated on at the end, when you meet Jesus face to face. Now, 
this idea of judgment, I realize it's an issue that can make a lot of people squirm. There's a lot of misconceptions that float around this topic. Now, most typically, people think of judgment as an act for not yet or non-believers, that God will judge those who rejected Christ, which is true. There, there is that phase of judgment where Jesus says he will separate the sheep from the goat, the sheep being those who believe in him and trust in him, and the goats who, who rejected Jesus. And there will be that judgment that evaluates the status of one's salvation, whether they are a believer or a non-believer. But Peter is actually kind of circling around a different kind of judgment that's going to happen. He's, he's speaking here not to, to believers and non-believers, but to predominantly believers. He's saying there's a, judge, a different judgment that's coming where every believer will have to give an account of their life and faithfulness. Romans 14, 12 talks of this, that each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says something similar. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due for our actions. See, what this means is that you don't just get saved and then coast through the rest of your life, that there will be a day where you have to give an account for how you lived as a Christian. That you'll be judged on your faithfulness to Christ. Now, what that means is that I, as your pastor, will have to give an account for myself and my conduct and how I pastored the people that God entrusted me. I will have to give an account to God for how I led and shepherded my family. I'll have to give account to God for how I discipled, uh, took care of my own discipleship, right? How I was faithful to Jesus on an individual basis. But this also means that you will have to give an account. Did you walk faithfully with Jesus? Did you live a holy life? Were you a learner? Did you lead your family deeper into the gospel or were you indifferent toward it? Did you live on mission? Did you work as if you were working unto the Lord? Did you live like a servant or a consumer? Did you delight in Jesus? Did you obey Jesus because of delight or obligation? Right, what did you value more than Jesus? Your kids, comfort, money, job, sexuality, stability, freedom? Right? I, I'm, I'm certain these are just a few of the questions that Jesus is going to ask us when we come face to face with him, when we sit, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, based on these honest answers that we give, Edmund Clowney says that our heavenly reward will be proportionate to our faithfulness. See, now, this, sometimes when, when, when this sort of equation between our faithfulness and reward, people start to, well, does that mean that there's different tiers of heaven? Like different, like, you know, here's heaven 1.0 and here's heaven 2.0 and depending on your faithfulness, you get into di different degrees. And, and, and that's not the case. Jonathan Edwards illustrates this very well. He says, every vessel that is cast into the ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others. 
So what he's saying, that everyone is going to experience the same intensity of happiness and joy in heaven. It's just that some people, depending on their faithfulness, will have a bigger plate to experience that on, depending upon their faithfulness in this life. See, what Peter is is showing us here, that as God is our impartial judge, right, there's these two, two, Um, variations of judgment, right? The judgment of salvation, which is based upon Christ's finished work. Did you believe in him? Did you trust in him? Did you you call on his blood to sanctify you and cleanse you? And there's the judgment of faithfulness, of how you responded to Christ's finished work, right? This is the imperatives, how you lived in light of what Jesus already accomplished. Now, being aware of these judgments ought to be sobering for us. Right? This ought to be a little bit of a wake-up call for us. Right? And I think that's what Peter is getting after when he says in, in verse um, 17, he, he, in the tail end of that, he says, if you call on them uh, as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time in exile. Right? The indicative here is that God is a loving Father who brought you into his family, but he's also an impartial judge that will judge you one day. And so the imperative here is to conduct yourself with fear throughout your time in exile. Now when we see the word fear, a lot of times we try to lessen that word, right? Soften it a little bit. Right, that, that, that has to be some old English thing going on there that's, that's not an accurate translation. Usually, what I did, when I first read this uh, this week, I was thinking, oh, that probably just means like reverence or, or reverent awe, some sort of like, oh, oh God, I see you up there and I'm reverent to you. But, and that seems to sit better with us but that actually downplays this intent that Peter uses with the word fear because when you go back to the Greek, the Greek word that's used here is phobos, which you probably picked up, that's the root word for phobia, which means literally fear, terror, alarm, panic, right? Is that right? Is, is Peter telling us to actually be fearful, to, to have some sort of urgency, alarm within us? And I think, yes, Yes, that's true. Every Christian should have a sense of fear in light of the reality of judgment. Now, let me clarify this. Because it's a little bit nuanced here. Because when a Christian looks at the first judgment of salvation, right, whether you will be a sheep or a goat, you should be scared. There should be fear. But you should not be unsure, Here's what I mean. You shouldn't be like, oh, I'm afraid that this Jesus thing isn't going to work. It's like swiping a debit card knowing that you have a zero balance, right? Is this transaction actually gonna go through? It's not like that, not at all. We should have a full assurance that our salvation rests entirely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We have full assurance of that, that if we believe in that, that we are with the sheep that Jesus says, you will enter into paradise with me. But what we should fear here as Christians, we should fear for our unbelieving friends, family, neighbor, and neighbors and coworkers. 
right? The, the loved ones in our life that have no idea that one day they are going to come face to face with an impartial judge. There's people in your life that don't even know that. And, and some of the people that do know that, they don't live like they know that. They just keep doing what they're doing. They keep going on their downward trajectory. Some people might get an idea of this impending judgment that's coming and think, well, the, the way to beat it is to become a better person. They just double down on their own good works and think they can heap up their good works in a way that outweighs all the, the bad things that they've done in their life. It doesn't work that way. See, as Christians, we know that the only thing that's sufficient in securing salvation is the blood of Jesus. And so in light of that, knowing that there's people who are not trusting in the blood of Jesus to cover their sins and to give them new life and to make them bored again, we should have an urgency and a fear and a holy motivation for mission. I think it's so easy to forget about this sometimes. And I hate to sound like I'm a doomsday guy, like it's all worlds coming to an end, but that's the reality, that there are people in your life that will face judgment that may not know that judgment's coming. And so we ought to have a burden. If we know what we've been saved from, we have a burden for those people to share the gospel, to invite them to Sunday morning gatherings, to invite them into missional community, to invite them into our lives and to share our brokenness with them and to show them how we trust in Jesus. So there is a very legitimate fear that goes on in the life of Christians, knowing that judgment is coming. It's not a fear for ourselves, right? We know our salvation is secure in Christ. It's a fear for those who do not yet know that. But in addition to this fear, there's also a reverent awe. There's a reverence for Christians now in how we live, knowing that we will be judged by our faithfulness as well. That second judgment. Now having full assurance of our salvation, knowing what God has done to save us from that judgment, we reverently live holy lives because that is what God saved us for. See, that's what eternity is going to be like. When eternity sets in, we, from that point on, are going to live holy lives. And it's gonna be a lot of fun. Like, it's not this sort of boring, drab experience of a holy, like, float around on a cloud and a harp thing. This is going to be so much fun to be with God and be with his people. So it's by God's grace that we begin to live like that now, that we begin to live holy lives, that we would conduct ourselves with fear. Now, here's the thing. To sort of summarize what this means, to conduct ourselves with fear, really, what, in light of the judgment, in light of the love and the grace that we've received, what that means is that we live holy lives on mission, Right? That's what it means to conduct yourself with fear, to live a holy life on mission. Now, Peter doesn't just say, conduct yourself with fear. He says, conduct yourself with fear through your time of, of exile. Now, the reality is, 
it's easier to live holy lives on mission when life is good and easy, right? When things are coasting along the way that you want it, when relationships are steady, when your job is stable, when your marriage is in a good place, when the kids are behaving well, when you've got plenty of free time, it's easy to, to live a holy life on mission then. But when times are tough, which times will get tough, if you are following Jesus, if you are living all in for Jesus, your life will be tough. It will be marked by difficulty. When your life is tough, living a holy life on mission becomes harder. And just because our circumstances are tough doesn't give you license to do what you want. See, this is our tendency a lot of the times, when, when we use unfavorable situations to justify doing what we want to do, right? When our lives get busy, we say, oh, I don't have time for mission. When you had a tough day at work or with the kids, you know, I, I say I'm going to drown away my sorrows in a tub of ice cream or, or maybe I'll drink too much. When marriage is tough, when the dating game is tough, you say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to porn. I'm gonna turn to a different relationship to satisfy. When your finances are shot, when you don't have money, you, you still decide, well, I'm gonna blow money anyway. I'm gonna rack up credit card debt. Right? That's the idea. When times get tough, I just do what I wanna do anyway. That's sort of an internal inclination that we have. So in light of difficulty, we have a tendency to give up on living holy lives on mission especially when things get hard. That's why Peter identifies this specifically, right? He's speaking to those who are exiled, who are living in times where the culture does not appreciate them or let, they don't fit in at all. They're being ostracized, all of this stuff. The tough times. And in these tough times, there's this sinful pull to resort back to a false holiness, to resort to our own mission, and what that is, is what Peter identifies as conforming to our former ignorance. What he talks about back in verse 14. Right? When life gets hard, there's this pull for us to conform to our former ignorance. And Peter says, no, no, guys. When, life gets, when life gets hard, don't turn there. Don't give yourself over to the passions of the flesh. Don't give yourself to selfish gain, to comfort, to self-glory, to fear of weakness, to selfishness. Don't do it. So Peter says, when you're, when, when you're facing tough times, especially in tough times, you should still live a holy life on mission. Here's why. There's a big why behind this. Because living a holy life on mission when life is hard is when your faith is most credible. Living a holy life on mission when times are hard is when your faith is most credible. Right? The people in your life who are not yet believers, those who are skeptics, they look and they're, they're just waiting for your faith to leave you high and dry. Right, waiting for the tough times to set in and, and you just say, well, I'm done with the faith, I'm gonna walk away. No, it's in those times when, when they see you clinging to Jesus where your faith is most credible. See, the credibility of a rope isn't discovered when it hangs loose. The credibility of the strength of a rope is when it's in tension. And the same is with our faith. 
Your faith, your hope is most credible to your not yet believing friends and family when your faith is being tested, right? When your family member's health or maybe your health is in limbo and you have comfort in the midst of an uncertainty, when your finances are thin but you live like you've been made rich in Christ, when your selfish desires are clearly pulling you one way yet you selflessly love, live for others, See, these are the times where the gospel, the hope, the faith that we have in God is pulled on full display. And when life is easy, you can say these things in theory, right? You can say, oh, my hope, my trust is in God, my, my, my faith is in God, but it's here in the tension where your faith and your hope is proven credible. And people are watching. They're wanting to see if it's actually sufficient to get you through the hard times. Because if it's sufficient to get you through your hard times, maybe it's possible that they could get through their hard times as well. They want to see if your faith and hope in God is actually legitimate. And, and that is what God's aim is for you so that at the end, your faith and your hope would be in God. That's how verse 21 ends. He says all these things leading up to this. He says, so your faith and hope are in God. But here's what you need to know. If you want to be able to live a holy life on mission through the difficulty, if you want to overcome the difficulty of life and reach the end and raise your arms in victory, with your hope and your faith in God. You need to know this, right? Because without this, you won't prosper. You'll eventually burn out. You might even turn and curse God. See, here's what Peter says you need to know. Verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Somebody say amen. This is a goldmine. If you want to live a holy life on mission through difficulty, this is what you need to know. So let's just walk through this real quick because this is a goldmine of gospel news for us. It starts off, Peter says, that you were ransomed. Right? Notice that this is past tense. It's already accomplished work, that Jesus did this already. Now, there's this, there's this misconception with, with Christian living. Sometimes we flip around the indicatives from the imperatives. We put the imperatives uh, before the indicatives, and we get the cart before the horse, and it ruins a lot of things here. See, to, to live a holy life on mission isn't about you trying to make yourself savable or appear more glamorous before God. Like maybe he, because you're doing the right things, now he'll, he'll look upon you favorably. No, God isn't a contractor who looks at you like a dilapidated house and tries to determine if you're worth saving. That's not what he's doing here. God has already saved you. He's already ransomed you, and he's brought you back from your futility, from your former ignorance. 
that he's ransomed you. He's already done it. Now, when I hear the word ransom, I can't help but think of, of uh, uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Taken, you know, the movie I'm talking about, and there's like 100 sequels to it, it seems like. They should have just stopped with the first one. But you think a, a, a scenario where somebody gets kidnapped and now there's got to be some exchange of money to get that person back. That's always what I think of. But this concept of being ransomed would have been, had a different connotation for the original audience, especially in a Greco-Roman context. Because this, this word ransomed in the Greek refers to this process of manumission of a slave. That's where a, a slave basically uh, earns their freedom. And this process of earning their freedom goes a little bit like this. A slave would go into the temple of any given god or goddess and they would deposit some sort of payment, money, gold, silver, some sort of payment in order to accomplish sort of, in a sense, buying their own freedom. So they put this money in. The temple, the people running the temple, the treasury would, would take a commission, but then they would take some of that money that that slave put in and, and put it back to their owner and say, you know, this slave has been bought by this goddess or God. Right, so in a sense, this slave, it appears that they had been bought by this God. So now by, by society standards and the view of their owner, they're no longer a slave, but they're a free person. But the only, the only, uh, 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 I can't think of the word I'm trying to say here. The only uh, condition is that now they are a slave to that God, right? Being as it, the God had bought them out of slavery, now here, here they are. There's, this is a transaction that was really familiar back in those times. Now, Peter plays off this common idea of being ransomed, and he applies it to what's happened in our salvation. He says that you were once a slave to your former ignorance, Right, the, these sinful tendencies that were passed down to you from father to father, from generation to generation. But this kind of slavery, this sort of ignorance, you could not buy yourself out of. Right, somebody else had to foot the bill. You couldn't afford it. And so he says that your ransom to get out from underneath the slavery of sin, it, it wasn't paid with gold or silver that perishes, right? those things aren't valuable enough to buy you out of it. It had to be paid out in blood. And not just any man's blood, but the blood of a sinless, unblemished man, the only man who lived a perfect life. Now what this is here, this is a reference, this is an Old Testament reference to the Passover back in Exodus 13 or so where God tells Moses to, to prepare his people and, and take a lamb that's spotless or without fault and, and to, to slaughter it and take the blood of the lamb and spread it over the doorpost, right? If you remember that when you were with us in Exodus. Now this is a reference to that scenario. It's because, of, it's because of the spotless land that was slain that Israel was led out of slavery. But now, Peter turns the scales here a little bit, or turns the view. He says, now it's the perfect, imperishable blood of Jesus that was shed. And this blood is more precious than gold or silver or anything man can create or generate. 
Now because of this, God's people are bought with a ransom. They are ransomed out of their futile ways. They've been redeemed. And now you belong to God, right? You are in God's family. See, that's where this idea of ransom comes from. And he kind of builds that out. And then in verse 20, it looks like he just kind of flips a script and just drops a theological bomb on us that comes out of nowhere, right? He says, um, uh, verse 20, he says, he was, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But this is more than just dropping a theological bomb. This is actually fits with his train of thought here, and I'll show you how that's true in a minute. But he's saying that the sacrifice of Christ, the spotless Man who died for you was not plan B. It's not like we failed plan A and now Jesus has to come up and clean up after us. No, this was God's plan from the start because our failure was imminent. That when we operate apart from God, when we buy into the former ways of ignorance that that Peter points out, that does not lead to a life that God intends for us. It does not lead to a life of holiness and happiness. God knew that we would fail at always living holy lives on mission, and so God graciously planned for this. He planned that Jesus would be like a lamb laid on the altar, slaughtered for our sins, cleansing us, forgiving us, while simultaneously making us holy and counting us righteousness in accordance with his blood. And verse 21 says that the plan doesn't end with just Jesus dying, right? It says that God who rose him from the dead and gave him glory. See, this is what God's plan was about, that Jesus would die, he would be raised from the dead, and he would have glory. And then Peter goes on and says something that's just jaw-dropping, I think. He says, this plan was made manifest for the sake of you. He's saying that God made this incredible plan before you were you for the sake of you. That God planned for his only son to be subjected to sin and death so that you could be freed from it and that Jesus willingly poured out his invaluable blood for you. And just think for a moment. Who would do something like this? Who would go to such lengths? Who would give up something so valuable? Only a father would orchestrate this. Only a loving father with no bottom to the depths of his love would do something like this. And check this out. Even in his great love, that he would plan this and Jesus would execute this. God would raise him from the dead. Even in his great love, God did not for one moment compromise his holiness. And so that this transaction that happens where where we are pardoned from our sin, that we are made holy by the blood of Christ. This does not compromise God's holiness. In fact, there will be a day when the judge rules he presides in judgment and he rules in our favor. He says, yes, 
You were saved. You are justified by the blood of Christ. Not because of the way that we lived a holy life on mission, but because Jesus did it perfectly for us, that he was the one who came after us. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, I want you to know this, that Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. Jesus endured unbearable suffering so that you could be made new, that you could be born again, that you could find hope and faith in God and live with him in happiness and holiness for eternity. For those of us who have already believed this, that we've heard and believed that we are in fact believers in God, that our hope and our faith rest fully on God. And so it's with full hearts of faith and hope and knowing that we were loved beyond comprehension that we respond in reverence to what God has done for us. And we do that by one way. We live holy lives on mission. That's what God wants for you. And the only way that you can do that is to come back to the gospel and see how Jesus did it perfectly. To forgive you in all your, your errors of, of living a holy life on mission. Jesus did it perfectly for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he was the one, the only one who came and lived a holy life on mission for the good of others, that we would know you, that we would be adopted into your family, that we would be born again and have a new inheritance and a new life. And Father, I pray that with that good news that you would shape us into people who love you deeply and in that love we express that by living a holy life on mission. Father, would you give us a burden for the friends and family that we have who are far from you, who don't know you yet, that we would live in a way that shows them your love, that, that communicates your goodness and your gospel. Father God, I pray that we would be able to see Dozens of people come to faith over the next six months. I pray that you'd be gracious to us, that as we are faithful on mission, that you would bear fruit, that we would see people baptized to live in their new life in Christ. Father God, give us a burden for mission, knowing that as we live on mission, we honor you, we glorify you, that the glory goes to Jesus, and that we are able to delight in you and know that others can delight in you as well. Father God, help us to do this in Jesus' name, amen.